Good morning. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. We're so glad that you are with us this morning. You know, there are events and instances throughout our lives that we can all recognize will be remembered forever because of their weight, because of their import. Feels like 2020 has been full of events like that. But then there are those instances, those days that seem insignificant, seem just like a normal everyday occurrence. But when you look back on them, you see how fundamental they are, how much they impacted who you are today and how you live today. We have one such event recorded for us in this passage from Galatians. Now, it may seem like it's not a very important meeting between Paul and some other church leaders, but in fact, What happens here in this instance shapes the way that the church has grown over the past generations. In fact, it's one of the reasons that you're watching this right now this morning. I want to see if you can pick out why. Let's listen as we hear God's Word read for us this morning. A reading from Galatians chapter 2. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running, or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Oh God, we thank you that you have been guiding the life and the church that you have invited your people into from the beginning of time. I'm going to start that prayer over, Wilson. Got it? Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Oh God, we thank you that you have been guiding your people from the beginning of time to this very day. We thank you that you have been leading your church since it was formed, that you have been taking care of your children. We thank you that you have preserved the words of your servant Paul, and through the Spirit that you have sent into our hearts, you speak to us. Pray that you would help us have ears to hear the words of life this morning, that we would be changed by the gospel as we see and believe your love for us, that we would be set free. Pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain, and I pray this in your Son's mighty and powerful name. Amen. Usually, when a big chain business moves into town, all of the small local mom-and-pop shops end up going out of business, right? Because the bigger business is able to provide a comparable product at a cheaper price, and the little guy just can't keep up. 
That's why so many local businesses are incredibly concerned when a Walmart or a Costco or a Safeway moves into the neighborhood. That's exactly how I thought all of the local craft breweries in Asheville, North Carolina would have felt when it was announced that New Belgium had bought some land in town. Now, if you don't know, New Belgium is an incredibly large brewer. They have a vast distribution network. They're responsible for beers like Fat Tire, Ranger IPA, Accumulation, stuff that you have no doubt seen on a grocery store shelf. I happened to be taking a tour of Asheville Brewing Company a couple of weeks after it was announced that New Belgium was coming to town, and just to stir the pot a little bit, I asked the head brewer who was giving the tour how he felt about this big new company coming to town, being their competition now with their considerable resources. And you know what he said? We're incredibly excited. I couldn't believe it. He went on to explain that several weeks before the purchase was announced, all of the craft brewers in Asheville were invited to an incredibly lavish dinner set out by New Belgium. And the message was clear. The CEO, the other executives were there, their head brewers were there, and they said, we chose Asheville because of what you guys have done here. We don't want to come in and take over the brewery culture here. We want to come be a part of it. We're not viewing this as a competition, but we're viewing it as a partnership. I was so surprised that a company the size of New Belgium would say that to small, tiny, insignificant microbreweries. I was also a little jealous I didn't get invited to that dinner. <laughs> partnership and unity. Those are the things that Paul is looking for and promoting in our passage today. If you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, Paul has been writing his own defense against some accusations by false teachers that he was just a JV apostle, that he really didn't have any authority of his own, and that the message that he was preaching wasn't good enough for the people of the churches in Galatia to truly be part of God's family. Last week, he defended his authority by explaining the story of his life, by saying that his life was radically changed when he had an encounter with the risen Jesus, and that Jesus had sent him to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. He really was an apostle sent out by Jesus. And now he turns his attention to defending the message that he proclaims everywhere he goes, the gospel, which is the good news of the life death, and resurrection of Jesus, which is our rescue. Now, hopefully you heard in there that this isn't Paul's first time defending this gospel. We have to recognize that there are two timelines going on in our passage. There is the time in which Paul is writing a letter to the Galatians, defending the gospel that he has already preached to them. And the way he does that is by retelling a story that happened to him months prior an event when he went to Jerusalem also to defend the gospel. That's the way he defends it in both arenas, both timelines. The result of the trip to Jerusalem was simple. The church leadership there didn't add anything to Paul's message, and he didn't find anything in their message that was different or distinct from his own gospel. They recognized they were preaching the same message, the same gospel, but they had been called to preach it to two different people they to the Jews, and Paul to the Gentiles. But what we see in Paul's interaction with the church leadership, what he is saying and proclaiming to the people of Galatia, and what the Scriptures tell us today is all the same message. Self-righteousness divides. 
And it leads us to ignore and malign and cancel people who aren't right like we are. But the gospel unites us, first by humbling us, pointing out our sin, opening our eyes to the ways that we failed, and then leading us to the only source of rescue, Jesus. And the result of that rescue, the result of that unity is selfless living, looking for ways to sacrifice for others that we previously would have distanced ourselves from, separated, or even maligned. Three points this morning. Self-righteousness divides, the gospel unites, resulting in selfless living. We have to start with the problem first. Self-righteousness divides. Circumcision for Jews living in the first century was a big deal, as it had been for the people of Israel for thousands of years, going all the way back to their forefather Abraham. It was the sign not only that you were part of the family, but that no matter what your life looked like, no matter where you were living, God's favor had come to rest on you, and that you could partake of the benefits and blessings of the promises that He had made to His people. And that's the exact way these false teachers were pitching it to the Christians in Galatia. It's great that you believe in Jesus, but you're not really in, right? You don't have full access to the blessings of God without the next step, without obeying the law of Moses. That's exactly what Paul is fighting against in Galatia and why he went to Jerusalem 14 years after he was converted. Both timelines, Paul is asking this question, is Jesus enough? The false teachers that rolled through Galatia were saying, no, he's not. You need to obey the laws as well. So how would Paul defend against that? By telling the way that he defended against it when he went to Jerusalem. He didn't go there 14 years after being converted because he was afraid he was preaching the wrong gospel He didn't go there so that the church leadership could give him a document saying, we affirm that Paul is preaching the right thing. He went because he was concerned that the leaders in Jerusalem might be trending in the same direction as these false teachers. If they were to affirm that following Jesus required also obeying the law, then all of Paul's work, all of his preaching, all of his church planting and leadership development would be running in vain, as he says. Why would it be in vain? Because Paul knows self-righteousness always divides. And to prove that, he brings a case study with him. He doesn't go to Jerusalem alone, but he brings two men. Barnabas, a Jew who was circumcised and believes in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for his salvation. Paul also brings Titus, a Greek man who is not circumcised, but he also believes in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for salvation. Now, if the church leadership was trending in the direction of the false teachers, they will accept one, Barnabas, but they will cast out the other, Titus, because self-righteousness always divides. It always judges, and it always excludes. Your self-righteousness does this too. It's us setting up markers and and standards based on our own behavior, on our own habits, to assure us that we're good, that we're in, that, that we're right. But it also means that when we see other people who don't meet those standards, who don't check those boxes, then we can exclude them. We can distance ourselves from them. We can ice them out, or as our culture is prone to do, we can cancel them. 
Let me give you an example from my own life. I've talked enough about driving righteousness. You know that that's in there. But I want to talk to you about something I've noticed growing in my own heart during shelter in place. I'm going to call it progress righteousness. It's really easy for me to see that sheltering in place prevents us from escaping our failures. We're all being confronted more and more with ways that we fall short, with how we hurt people, with the problems that we cause. And one of the things I like to think about myself is that when I experience one of my own failures, when I know that I've messed up, I change things in order to try and not mess up the same way again. Now, I'm sure there are plenty of you out there who have specific examples where I haven't done that, but this is what I think about myself, and this is what I think is right, which means as I sit and listen to other people share about their disappointments in their life, about how frustrated they are, about how sad they are, about whatever, and they can pinpoint an action of their own that has caused this frustration or pain, and then they say, I've not done anything to change it, I notice a coldness growing in my heart, a lack of sympathy, a lack of being able to understand what they're going through. Instead, what I sense is a thought like, why don't you just do something about it? Why don't you try to make a change so you don't experience that frustration or disappointment anymore? And even though I don't ever explicitly say it, what that messaging in my heart is, is yeah, Jesus is good, but there's another step you need to take. If you really want to have access to certain blessings and benefits, you got to progress. You got to change. What is that marker of righteousness for you? Is it making sure that you're the one posting or reposting the right culturally appropriate things to social media? Or maybe it's being disconnected from social media altogether. Maybe your rightness is connected to the fact that you've found a quick route up the corporate ladder. Everyone else is just lazy. Or maybe it's the fact that you've been with the same company for 10 years and everyone else is just greedy or egotistical. Maybe it's the fact that you're really invested in the education of your child and you're constantly there helping them learn and grow, talking to their teacher, and everyone else is just selfish. Or maybe it's the fact that you're not doing too much for your child, that you're letting them figure things out. You're letting them take control of their education. Everyone else is just an overly sensitive helicopter parent. Or maybe it's getting out of the house, back into society, not wearing a mask 24-7. Everyone else is just scared. Maybe it is wearing a mask and largely sheltering in place, and everyone else is just reckless and selfish. Check your heart. Where are you elevating your opinions and your behaviors and your decisions to, to a place that makes you feel right and comfortable and safe? Because it's in that exact same place that you are judging others, looking down on them, maybe mocking them or icing them out. When we rely on self-righteousness, we isolate ourselves, we distance others just because we feel like we are better than them. The amazing thing about the gospel is that it opens us up to relationships and community with people we would never choose to be connected to. Because the gospel always unites. Self-righteousness divides, but the gospel unites. Now, before we get too far into this point, the question might come up, why does it even matter? Why can't I just hang around with people who agree with me? Why can't I just spend time with people that I get along with, that get along with me? Like, isn't that more peaceful? Look at how Paul talks about it. 
In verse 4, he says, these false brothers secretly came in. They were hoping to spy out the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. If we choose to continue to dwell in the division brought on by self-righteousness, we become slaves to those markers, those standards that we've set up. Slavery. And as we've said over and over in this sermon series, the gospel is a story of rescue. You and I both need to be rescued. And the same person that rescues me has or is willing to rescue you. And both of those things unite us. Look at how Peter, James, and John, the church officials in Jerusalem, respond to Paul and Barnabas and Titus. In verse 9, they extend the right hand of fellowship. They commission Paul and Barnabas to go preach the gospel. Titus, who is a Greek follower of Jesus, is joined in fellowship with the Jewish leaders of the Christian church. Twenty years prior, he would have been cast out. He would have been looked down on and made fun of. The Jews of the first century often mocked Gentiles by calling them dogs, which isn't a kind thing to say. It's not like they were fluffy, comfortable pets back then, but they were wild, homeless scavengers. So for the self-righteous Jews that were standing watching this interaction between Paul, Barnabas, Titus, James, Peter, and John, they would have been shocked. This would have been like you or I bringing a raccoon into our house and sitting on the couch cuddling with it. And that might sound ridiculous, but that's the point. Self-righteous Jews watching this might have said, what is that mongrel doing here? He belongs outside. This is one of the amazing and uniting things about the gospel is that it always points out how we ourselves are mongrels first. The gospel is always bad news before it's good news. Wait a minute, Stephen, you said the gospel is a story of rescue, not bad news. It's true, but the gospel always starts with what you need to be rescued from. And guess what? It's you. Paul, Barnabas, Peter, James, you and I, we all need to be rescued from our own sin and our own failure. You and I are no different than them, from those men at this meeting in Jerusalem, from the believers and the churches in Galatia that Paul is writing to. We all need to be rescued from our own self-righteousness and our own sin. And thankfully, as Paul says here, God shows no partiality. Your sin is no greater than my sin in terms of a need for rescue. All need for rescue is the same in God's eyes and He is willing to rescue anyone who comes to Him. We all need it. We are united in our need. That's what made the show Gilligan's Island so ridiculous and yet so popular. Do you remember Gilligan's Island? Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale. Long time ago, but it was amazing. Each one of those passengers that was marooned on a desert island came from a different history. They had a different story, different experiences. And they were all looking for something different on the island, right? The Howells were trying to make life on the island as comfortable as possible, but the professor was always trying to figure out how to get off the island. Ginger was always focused on how she looked and how she felt and what people thought about her, but Marianne was always worried about everybody else. They all had different experiences, and no matter what happened in the course of that episode, what conflict they got into or how they hurt each other or what happened, by the end of it, they always came back together. Now, I'm fully aware that's partly because 30 minutes is 30 minutes, and you've got to have a happy ending, 
But in reality, the reason is because they were united in their lostness. They were all equal in the fact that they needed to be rescued. The same is true for us. We are united in our need. My progress, my self-righteousness doesn't rescue me. Whatever your self-righteousness lies in, it doesn't rescue you. But we're united in the fact that we need to be rescued and that we have the only hope in one rescuer, Jesus. Jesus shows no partiality. He rescues anyone who turns to him for rescue, but he doesn't stop there. Rescue and unity always result in selfless living. Self-righteousness divides, the gospel unites, resulting in selfless living. So we're united to each other. That's great. We're all part of the same family. Awesome. Peter, Paul, James, John, Titus, Barnabas, all on the same page. That's a really big deal. That means that people like you and I, who don't necessarily have a Jewish background, are invited to participate in the same gospel community as those who do have a Jewish background because we all have the same need and we all have the same rescuer. But look at how this passage ends. It's really easy to miss, but it's incredibly important. Verse 10, only they, James, John, and Peter, asked us, Paul and Titus and Barnabas, to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, this might seem like a throwaway comment, like something you might say when a server says, have a nice day, and you say, you too right? Like Paul and his group are leaving and they say, peace be with you. And Peter, James, and John are like, don't forget the poor. But it's actually more than that. Historically, what was happening was a giant famine had gripped the region of Israel in Judea. And the poor Christians of Jerusalem were suffering greatly. So Peter's comment is actually pleading with Paul and Barnabas, not just to go home and trust in the unity that they had just confirmed but asking Paul and Barnabas to consider helping in some way. And Paul's not surprised by this. It's the very thing that he was eager to do, as he says. In fact, Acts chapter 11 confirms that this was one of the reasons that Paul went to Jerusalem in the first place. Paul is doing ministry at a church in a city called Antioch, which is in Turkey near Galatia. And the disciples here, the disciples there in Antioch, excuse me, hear that there is a great famine in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 11, verse 29. So the disciples of Antioch determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul, which is Paul's other name. That's awesome. But don't miss the power of what has just happened. Paul in Antioch takes a gift to the suffering disciples in Judea They agreed to send financial help, but when he gets there, he talks to Peter, James, and John about the gospel of grace because he had already experienced challenges from teachers saying that the gospel of grace wasn't enough, that you also had to obey the law, that the gospel the Gentile believers in Antioch were believing wasn't enough. The Christians from Antioch are giving of their finances to a group of people who have basically been saying, you are not enough. That's ridiculous. It's hard enough for us to sacrifice things for people who actually like us. This level of selflessness can only come from a unity produced by being rescued. 
That's it. And that's what happens. The more that you and I come to see and believe that the only thing we contribute to this whole thing is our need, the more we'll be able to see and sympathize with the needs and suffering of other people, rather than excluding them, avoiding them, isolating them, passing judgment on where they've gone wrong, we begin to see a reflection of our own need in their needs. Because we've been aware of how our needs have been met, we begin to seek out ways to meet their needs, to help, to sacrifice our own time, our own treasure, our own talent in order to help meet those needs. When Martin Luther died, he had a piece of paper in his pocket the last thing, basically, that Martin Luther contributed to the world after his death. And it wasn't a summary of all the amazing theology that he had expounded upon over his life. It wasn't a list of his favorite Bible passages or his top ten books that we should read. It was this simple phrase, we are all beggars, this is true. And I think that's a perfect analogy for what we're talking about. Because beggars realize the need inside, and they realize they can't meet that need, so they go searching for some source of food, of sustenance, of rescue. But if you still think that you are responsible for finding that rescue, when you do, you won't tell anybody about it, because it will cost too much. You'll have to share. But if you recognize that the one who is feeding you, who has rescued you, has a limitless supply you will tell as many people as possible to come have their needs met, no matter the cost to you. Self-righteousness divides. The well, gospel we hope unites in the word that you received living. and experienced anew this is what God's Jesus rescue has in Jesus Christ. And, and we also pray that that leads us. you to more selfless That's and right. generous living. And one God, of the ways that you, you can do that is actually that by we financially off, supporting the work of ministry of Grace South Bay. You, you can do that by going online, gracesouthbay.com, but instead and click on the Give button. Us um, and if you're part of Grace South by Bay, sending this your is your son church Jesus home, then God calls you to do that. To live the but life if you're tuning in and visiting and we haven't met you, we'd love to meet you first virtually. So if you would, again, go to our website, go to Connect, just sign in, let us know who you are, let us know that you're watching, and one of the pastors will get back to you. But now let's take a few moments to that we would see other Christians what it not means as to be rescued in Jesus Christ. Not as people who need to be corrected, who need to get on the right path of thinking, but as brothers and sisters looking to the same rescuer. Help us to point people to you. Help us to be beggars, telling other beggars where to find food. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus who's rescued us. The church is one foundation.